Hi, and welcome to the Dewing Grain podcast. Each week, Andrew Dewing will talk you through the current market, giving you up-to-date information and insider advice. He will also be interviewing a leader in the world of agriculture and finishing up with Farm Chat, which includes his favourite bit, where he tastes beer for free. So let's start with Andrew Dewing and his market report. Welcome to the Market Report. What follows is my thoughts or gut instincts of what the market is going to do. It is not an instruction to trade. Any decision to trade is yours. This is the Market Report for the week commencing the 1st of April 2019. I'm Josh and I'll be presenting this week instead of Andrew because him and Ollie are on a fact-finding mission in Warsaw uh, tasting every single beer I think they can get their hands on. So... In that case, I think I'll leave out malting barley and uh, and leave that to Andrew next week. I think we'll start with uh, oilseed rape. Okay, so it's very important to announce before I say anything is that, that there's a USDA announcement uh, this afternoon. This is on the day of recording before it gets released. So I could either be absolutely bang on or completely wrong. And we'll find out by the time this goes out. Rapeseed. So in European rapeseed, China's continuing its, its spat with Canada um, over Huawei. And that's basically actually keeping prices relatively firm. Because as China, as Canadian rapeseed will be coming over to, to Europe, Ukrainian rapeseed is looking like it's going to make its way over to China. So it shouldn't have the effect it had three weeks ago where the market collapsed. Crush margins on the whole seem to be very good. Um, so that's sort of continuing demand for rapeseed. Looking on the futures side of things, the, it looks like the May rapeseed's struggling to get through the 360 euro mark. So that's kind of creating a bit of a glass ceiling at the moment. Um, it doesn't seem to want to go much further than that. So that seems to be a psychological figure that no one wants to go past. Physical values for rapeseed are £303 a tonne ex farm for May and £295 a tonne for harvest this year. So still relatively decent with your bonus on top. You know, you'll be well above 300 for harvest. So, you know, it might be worth considering, especially if, if you know, with this weather being absolutely fantastic the way it is, then, then yields could be good and prices could easily come down. On the UK wheat market, we'll start with old crop. The market has been very quiet in the last few weeks. Nothing's really happened. Farmers aren't selling. They're getting on with field work, spreading fertilizer, planting, planting spring barley, um, just doing anything but talking to a grain merchant. One thing that's worth mentioning now is that as we're coming towards the last quarter of the year before harvest, we're now seeing there's actually a few consumers coming out of the woodwork and, and looking to buy. So it's it's actually pulling prices up. While the futures are staying relatively flat or going down, physical prices are staying firm or even slightly increasing. This kind of indicates there could be some quite relatively big trade shorts out there. And there's definitely one big long in the market that doesn't seem to be wanting to sell except for a decent premium. This also leads to the question, is there actually as much wheat as what people thought there was um, or there should be in the country? I think our worry is that actually if if we went out there to to go and buy a great deal of wheat, there there probably isn't. You know, it'd be a struggle to buy, especially at these levels when people have already seen 190 in the market and the price currently for May is around about 162. It'll be interesting to see where it goes. I think if you've got some old crop wheat, I'd probably hold on because the, the demand definitely seems to be there. Moving on to new crop... Goodness. I mean, if you were to look very locally, you would sell everything because compared to a year ago, things look fantastic. You know, we went into a perfect winter, into a perfect autumn. Winter's been kind on the whole. Spring's been fantastic with a bit of rain in the middle to the end of next week. Yeah, you'd sell it. But luckily, 
we don't trade off the back of what happens just down the road in Norfolk or Suffolk. We look at, you know, around the world and seeing what's going on. Let's start with the US. So they are unbelievably wet. They've had so much rain. Snow's melted. They had, you know, they had that polar vortex in February, which has kind of affected things badly. Then loads of rain. They're stating that Nebraska, which I think is the 15th biggest state, and and a third of that was closed at some point, completely inaccessible because roads were destroyed, bridges, everything. The damage in that in those areas are is meant to last a, a long, long time. You know, it's not going to be something that's going to fix itself in in six months. It's it's going to stay there. So I think the U.S. as a whole, the whole Midwest is really struggling with very extreme weather. They're struggling to get on with their corn planting. They can't really do any field work, so it's not all about the corn planting. Wheat doesn't look great, so that's something worth considering. Don't hang your hat on it because it could dry out, and they get on with their corn planting. They get on with field work, and they'll be fine. But just worth considering at the moment. To our east, if you start looking at Russia, you know, Hungary, Ukraine, uh, anywhere pretty much the Eastern Bloc, it is the polar opposite. It's very dry. Uh, they had a very, very dry autumn. Well, they had a very dry summer, much like us. Very dry autumn. They didn't get any really favourable rains. Then the winters come in. It snowed. And so they haven't been able to get on with anything. Now the snow has started to disappear, there's still no sign of rain. So while some of the snow will uh, will melt and, and have a little bit of soil moisture, the long-term forecast in the Eastern Bloc is the fact there's absolutely um, no rain whatsoever. So, you know, if you take a combination of a very wet US, very dry Eastern Europe and, and Russia, then... I think on the whole, there is a slightly bullish tinge to the new crop. We've just got to keep an eye on the weather market. And if there is rain or if it starts drying up in the US, then then we must be ready to switch and, and turn around. Harvest price for wheat is £135 per tonne ex-farm. Uh, you can get 139 delivered to store for harvest. November price is £142 a tonne. So it's, you know, it's okay. It's not world, it's not record breaking, but compared to five years ago or, or three years ago, market's still fairly firm. So worth looking at and maybe doing an option or a cash settlement at a later date. Uh, a couple of other things that I've touched on that are worth mentioning is that uh, there's a there's a huge, huge corn uh, short by funds. They're at record short on corn. And that's based off, you know, things have been fantastic, huge stocks. But with... The USDA report coming out, they if there's any scare in there, you know, that plantings are down or stocks are slightly lower than they thought, the funds will have to buy in. So we could see quite a violent swing on corn. And as corn is, is a world leader in terms of feed grains, we could see that, that turn around and the market violently swing and go up. So it's definitely worth considering, um, very much worth watching. So please keep an eye on corn. In other news, Brexit's Brexit, and again, they would have changed a great deal by the time this, this recording goes out. But there is there is a world economic slowdown, and that's not because of Brexit. That's just because of slower China growth. You know, trade deals with the US are struggling in China, so and there just seems to be more trade barriers than ever have been before. So we need something to turn around on that, but there does seem to be a bit more of talk and quite a few people talking about a, a slowdown in the world economic market. So where that goes, we're not sure, but, but it does seem that way at the moment. Uh, I think this is pretty much all for this week um again we'll, we'll, we'll find out more next week to, as to see what the usda report comes out as and uh, and what brexit news there is so definitely worth considering thank you very much thank you for listening please remember that any decision to trade on this opinion is yours Crush foods produces a unique range of single variety cold pressed rapeseed oils all their seed is grown here in norfolk They only press a single variety for its taste and they believe that this is what gives the oil the light, nutty flavour people like. Available in local shops across Norfolk, Suffolk, 
and beyond. Visit crush-foods.com for more information. And now it's time for our feature. Brandy, it isn't long since I was speaking to you about speed breeding. And today we're going to talk about speed cloning, I understand. Correct, yes. So uh, wheat has a lot of genes. It's a very, very complex organism in which three different grasses have hybridized. They've come together to form the bread wheat that we know today and which we all recognize. Um, so it's a hideously complex genome. There's 126,000 genes in the wheat genome. And finding one of these genes and attributing them to a certain trait. It's like looking for a needle in a haystack. Well, that's the challenge you've been set. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, I guess it is, really. Um, but can you talk me through how the result of, well, is it wild relative resistant genes? Maybe you can put it in an easier way. Would have been achieved in the past and the difference now? Yes, so the, the wild relatives of wheat, they contain a lot of useful genetic variation um, but recruiting that genetic variation and bringing it into the wheat gene pool um, is very difficult. It's something breeders and farmers and cytogeneticists have tried in the past, and there have been some success stories. But using conventional crossing to do this is very difficult. It's a bit like uh, crossing a racehorse with a donkey, and it takes many, many back crosses to... Uh, obtain something which is, is, is pure, which has all the characteristics of the bread wheat that we recognize, the high yields, the taste, the nutritional qualities, um, but then has that extra thing from the wild relative, for example, a gene for disease resistance. Right. So it's a bit like if you carried on with your horse analogy, then yes. you're kind of like trying to get like just like the whiskers from the donkey, and but you want to keep the rest of the thoroughbred exactly the same kind of thing. Something like that, right. yes. Okay. So, and and in, in my case, we're very interested in disease-resistance genes because a lot of the uh, diseases that were around when wheat was domesticated 10,000 years ago, they, they have changed. And so the choices that were made in the past by early farmers uh, were made in a in a different environment, in a different climate. And those choices were often made on other characteristics than disease. Right. And diseases change very rapidly. And so now we have wheat with certain characteristics. We, we like it. We want to maintain those characteristics. But we want to go back to the wild relatives and see if we can recruit some of that amazing genetic diversity for disease resistance. Because the way it's dealt with in modern farming is to douse our crops in, in chemicals. Yeah. And that's expensive and probably not sustainable in the long run. So tell me about what your solution is. Well, so we've had a, a love-hate relationship with these wild relatives for a long time, but they're very, very difficult to, to work with. We've got some of them in front of us right now. Yeah. And um, so I'm going to, to show you, this is a wild relative. Um, it doesn't exactly look like bread wheat, does it? It doesn't, no. It's um, kind of like sort of four little units on it, hasn't it, by the looks of things? Yes, and, it, and it's very four brittle. These units, they fall off very easily, Ooh, just yeah, like that. Right. Um, and, and that was one of the first traits in, in domestication, was to retain the seed uh, on the head when you were harvesting it, so it wouldn't just fall off. Right. So the, the other thing you'll, you'll notice if you pick up one of these uh, cases is that they're very hard very, very difficult to, to work with. Right. Um, 
but yep. but Can't inside one out. of these there's there's a seed it will it'll probably um it's, it's a bit like putting bamboo splinters under your nails to try and get one of these seed out um Whereas yeah, you, with the... Um, you couldn't rub that out. Yeah, it's very difficult. Whereas with with this, you just take it in your hand and you... This this is now the uh, domesticated wheat. You take it in your hand, you rub it between your fingers and all the seed will, will come out. Try this. Yeah, and that they will fall. Oh, look, no, there's a little seed. Look at this. Ready for harvest. So so working with these wild relatives is, is not easy. Um, moreover, they have very long generation times. It takes about... Uh, seven months or so to go from seed to seed. So it's not the best way to entertain a PhD student or postdoc to, to work on these things. But nonetheless, they, they have these very important disease resistance genes. And and now we've, we've found a way of overcoming the challenges of working with this material and very, very quickly identifying the gene that we're after in the genome. Right. What, what we know from many years of working on disease resistance is that these disease resistance genes are, uh, they, they, uh, they encode receptors um, that enable the plant to see the presence of the pathogen, the, the organism which is causing the disease. And so if you can take one of these receptors and put it into a... Um, uh, a commercial cultivar like this one, yep. you endow upon the plant the ability to to see the disease and, and then it can defend itself. So all, all these plants can defend themselves, but they can't always see the disease. Ah, I see. And so um, these receptors have certain characteristics. And so what we can do is instead of... Um, uh, looking at every single gene in the genome, we can just restrict our vision to the tiny proportion of the genome which encodes for these receptors. Right. Okay. So that's the first thing we do. We restrict our vision. We reduce the complexity to just look at this tiny proportion of the genome. Nonetheless, in a typical wild wheat, there'll be a thousand or so of these receptors. Um, so what we do is we don't just look at one plant, we look at a whole panel of um, accessions or lines, lines right. uh, which have been collected uh, in nature. Yep. And, and these lines, they have been recombining freely for thousands and thousands of years, and there's been mutations which have accumulated. So they all look slightly different. Okay? Okay. And then we phenotype them with, the pa- with a pathogen. So we infect them uh, with a, a, a pathogen causing a disease, and we look for those variants that are resistant to right. the disease. Yep, those are the ones you want. Those are the ones we want. And then we look for something which is in common in those variants, in that group of genes encoding the receptors. Ah. And if we find something that's in common, then most likely that is the disease resistance gene. Right. So we're looking for a gene which is present in all the resistant varieties and absent in all the susceptible varieties or lines. Right. Yep. It's a detective work. So it, it's detective work. It involves a lot of sequencing and a lot of bioinformatics and uh 
those are two technologies which have improved a lot in recent years. So this is suddenly making this possible? That, correct, yes. This would have been a, a bit of a wild dream just some years ago, but uh, now we've, we've, we've improved that technology and uh, we're able to, to take advantage of that matrix of information that nature has generated for us. So can you just explain in a nutshell what, what the speed bit is and what the cloning bit is? Right. So, well, in, in the old days, you would make crosses between a susceptible individual uh, and an individual which is resistant to the disease. And, and this is difficult because, you know, uh, peeling these seed, growing up the plants, generating your own crosses, generating your own populations, this would take years and years of work. Um, but now we can use the genetic structure that's already present in nature. Uh, so we don't have to make that ourselves. So we save many, many years and lots of work. Um, and so we can very rapidly, from just sequencing and infecting these plants with disease, we can then home in on the disease resistance genes. And once we have those, then it becomes a lot easier to transfer that tiny proportion of the genome into the elite commercial variety because it's like you've got an address tag so you can use a molecular marker for that address tag to just transfer that bit across and leave all the excess luggage behind the donkey the donkey's left behind the whiskers are moving over and there is your thoroughbred with some new whiskers correct oh brilliant that sounds fantastic so um there's the speed bit is because you don't have to do any of that crossing anymore and then you've got the cloning because you're like taking that piece out and reproducing it and putting it into the new piece yes. is that right it's it's a bit difficult to get rid of all the bits of the donkey and that that is still a rate limiting step um but that's where we are at the moment with uh, conventional crossing and genetics but of course with clone genes it also opens up uh, another very exciting opportunity um, and that would be to take these cloned genes, uh, take them out with the molecular tweezers and then stick them straight into a commercial elite variety. Of course that would be billed as GM and ah. we're not going to see that anytime soon on the dinner table right. um, but it is a very exciting opportunity. So is this going to be useful to UK farmers or I think it was rust and hessian fly and powdery mildew. Are those things that affect UK farmers or are they things that are in different countries? So we've demonstrated proof of concept with a disease called stem rust and you also mentioned hessian fly. Two of the main diseases that wheat farmers face in the UK are stripe rust, uh, which is a kissing cousin of stem rust, right. uh, and uh, septoria. And I'm quite optimistic that uh, this technology could also be used to to clone uh, disease resistance genes for uh, stripe rust and, and septoria. So if there's a scenario where there's a disease epidemic in wheat, perhaps something that we haven't sort of, we don't know about at the moment, what would be the scenario then? Would you be able to kind of, you know, fight that? <laughs> well, a, a case in hand is wheat blast, which recently emerged in Bangladesh. It used to be a disease that was confined to the Americas in Brazil, Paraguay and, and Bolivia. It's a very devastating disease and there's very, very little, if any, good uh, resistance in the wheat uh, gene pool for this disease. 
about two years ago, it appeared in Bangladesh, uh, probably because of uh, uh, some contaminated grain that was imported from the Americas into uh, Bangladesh. Now, the worry is that this disease uh, will now spread into the breadbaskets of uh, the northern Punjab of India and Pakistan and, and also into China, where they grow about 20% of the world's wheat and where there's 200 million people, many of them living below the poverty line, who desperately depend on wheat for their yeah. daily bread. And, and so this is potentially very bad news. It's, it could just be a matter of time before this disease spreads out of Bangladesh into these countries. And so we, we also have a program where we're looking at some of these wild relatives um, we've found very good resistance to wheat blast and we're using our rapid gene cloning technology to see if we can clone resistance genes for wheat blast. And so this would be a very interesting example then where we could potentially take genes from wild relatives of wheat uh, that confer resistance to wheat blast and then stick them into Bangladeshi adapted varieties of wheat. That'd be amazing. Gosh, fantastic. I think we're almost done on this, but I, I can't resist but ask you, you know, just to keep it kind of current, um, how Brexit is um, affecting you at the moment and what your thoughts are on going forward as a scientist. Let's, let's take a step back. Yeah. So in the UK, we currently import about 40% or so of the food that we consume and during the next generation, that's predicted to rise to about 50%. Right. And most of that food comes from the EU. And so with Brexit looming on the horizon, it's quite possible that the cost of food imported from the EU will rise. So that is going to be felt by British consumers. If we could improve the quality and the amount of food which is uh, grown and produced in the UK, uh, we might be able to mitigate some of those rises in, in, in price. Yeah. Um, and, and perhaps one way of doing that is generating or developing crops that are more disease resistant. Um, in the case of wheat, the gate value is approximately two billion pounds per year as, as far as I remember um, and farmers spend about 150 million pounds to protect that crop against pests so if we could make the wheat more disease resistant um, there's a, a, a margin there for um, you know reducing the, the cost of producing that wheat yeah so hopefully making it cheaper. And hopefully <laughs> making it cheaper. And and hopefully uh, it would be a better environment for, for all of us if, if we're using less pesticides. Definitely. Well, thank you very much for your time today, Brandon. That's brilliant. Thank you. You're welcome. Now it's time for Farm Chat. Okay, so this morning it's uh, myself and Ben, and we're going to be talking about if football managers were UK MPs. 
Oh, here we go. My favourite. Yeah, um, Theresa May. Being David Moyes. Why is that, Josh? Well, both well-respected members of the background for years and a steady hand to continue a dynasty. Their appointments have never seemed to work. A series of successive failures have shown them to be out of their depth and only Sunderland can await. There we go. That's a good one. Oh, and here's the... Okay, so next we're looking at Jeremy Corbyn and Arsene Wenger. Yes, this is a good one. Kind, wise men and hopelessly naive to others. Especially in defence. There we go. That ticks a few boxes. The last great idealist. (laughs) These guys have preached progressive values back to before they were cool. Yes, okay. Now, if we look at the Lib Dems, who are we looking at there? Um, Vince Cable. Oh, Steve McLaren. Originally thought to be all right, but bigger roles have showed that they're really out of their depth. (laughs) Paul Steve McLaren was a great coach, but a dreadful, dreadful uh, manager. Yeah, no, he did struggle, didn't he? Wally with a brolly. Oh, no, here we go. Uh, This one's probably my favourite, Nigel Farage. Being Sam Allardyce. Okay. Despite never actually achieving anything, being a trophy or an election, both of them is about as British as they come. They drink pints of wine and can't wait to leave the EU. <laughs> okay, not bad. Oh dear, this is a bit... Okay, yeah, not, I'm not so up on this one. Ed Miliband being... And Jurgen Klopp, the okay. Liverpool manager. Brad's favourite. <laughs> Normally very much considered very good blokes. Both have a habit of bottling it on big occasions. I don't think Jurgen Klopp's ever won a final. I think he's won two leagues, but never won anything else. A bit like uh, Mr Miliband. Ah, oh, Boris Johnson. And Louis van Gaal. Okay. Uh, sure, they're eccentric and they like up press, press conferences because they're both pretty odd, but they're both as mad as a box of frogs <laughs> and uh, with some very strange and uh, crazy ideas. Brexit slash uh, Marcus Rashford at left wing back. Okay, this is a little bit controversial. Tony Blair. Uh, and Sir, apparently Sir Alex Ferguson. Mm. But there are still calls for both their returns. Uh, both have done unbelievable success, apparently. But whilst, <laughs> whilst Fergie's dark side was involved persuading referees, at least he's not a war criminal. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> this is a good one. Jeremy Hunt. Or oh, Jose Mourinho. Okay. The Dark Lord. Pure evil. God knows how they keep getting jobs. But they do, and everything around them dies. <laughs> and not only that, Jeremy Hunt can't remember which country his wife's from. <laughs> no, he can't. After he's accused her of being Chinese when she's Japanese. Oh, is anyone going to know that one? Arlene Foster. The DUP leader. And Maurizio Sarri, the Chelsea manager. Um, question opinions on gay people and a rigid philosophy that will not bend for anyone. Okay, that, that's bang on. I think we'd better leave it there. I wonder which football manager we can compare Andrew to. Don't answer that one now. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to get new episodes as they're released. Dew and Grain are independent and local grain traders. From seed supply to harvest movement and storage contracts, we can supply you with the best strategies to help you achieve the highest prices for your harvest. Call now on 01263 731 550 or email info at dewandgrain.co.uk or follow us on Twitter. We are at Dewing Grain. The Dewing Grain podcast is produced by Tinshed Productions in conjunction with East Coast Design Studio. 